Well, I'd invite you to take a seat. You can sit back and relax. Kim and Charlie and the band will be back a little bit later. But uh, we're so glad to have you uh, along tonight. If you, if you snuck in late, um, or in case you, you missed uh, Jimmy, uh, no, not Jimmy, geez, Riley and Emma. I should know those two names. Uh, Riley and Emma. My name's Chris. I'm one of the communicators here at Beyond. And uh, you're joining us in the middle of a series that we launched last week. And actually, Riley launched it last week. And he's going to wrap it up next week as well. So you should definitely come along as he wraps the series up. But he launched it last week. And this series is just simply called How to Be Great. And uh, I don't know what your experience is with church, and, and regardless of whatever church experience you have, uh, we're so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, we want to let you know that if you have zero church experience, that we've created this place with you in mind. And so we really hope that you feel comfortable um, in this place, because uh, we created it for you. And maybe you look at a title like this and you think, is this really something you should be talking about in this kind of context? Like, like do, are people really supposed to be great if they're Jesus followers? I mean, aren't, aren't they supposed to be humble? Aren't they supposed to be like servants? Are they, are they really supposed to be great? And, and the reason we're kind of having this conversation is because this is something we talk about. This word is something we talk about within our culture all the time, right? Like there are debates about like who's, who's the greatest of all time. Who's the greatest athlete of all time? Who's the greatest performer of all time? You know, like, is it Justin Bieber? Is it Madonna? Is it someone like back, like back old school, like the Beatles? Like, is it Elvis Presley? Like, who is the greatest performer and entertainer of all time? Who's the greatest humanitarian? Or who's the greatest human rights activist of, of all time? And, and even if for you, even if you're kind of like, well, I don't really get into those conversations and I don't really ever want to be the greatest of all time in any area, um, maybe for you, you just simply want to be great in your life. Whether, whether that's you just want to be a great girlfriend or a great boyfriend, you want to be a great boss, you want to be someone who's a great teammate, you just want to be a great person to be around. Maybe for you, you, just, you want to be a great husband or a wife or whatever it is, but maybe there's something in your life that you look at, the career you're in or the career you're studying for or the career that you hope to one day maybe have and you just look at that and you just think, hey, I don't necessarily want to be the greatest of all time, but, but I really want to be good at it. I really, really want to be great at it. And last week, Riley kind of launched us off in this series, and, and he gave us a definition. And it was a definition of greatness that uh, we actually got from Jesus. And it was, this definition came uh, from a conversation that Jesus had with um, some of his closest followers, and Jesus kind of redefined this idea of greatness. And I'm going to show you, because it's, it's the working definition that we're going to have this week and next week as we close out this series. Uh, but I want to let you know, if you're not a follower of Jesus... Uh, this, the definition I'm about to show you is not a definition you have to have. Right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you can pick another definition. You can make your own definition. You can disagree with it. That's totally fine. But, but if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a definition that we don't have any wiggle room on. And in fact, I would go as far to say that if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this definition that Jesus gives might cause you to go, oh, do I really want the whole Jesus thing if that's how he defines greatness? And so last week we discovered that greatness is this. Greatness is what you do for others. Not what you think about others, not what you hope for others, not what you, maybe one day I will. No, greatness is actually what you do for others. And I don't know about you, but it kind of seems a little bit odd that we're having a part two and three of this series. Like if that's, if that's the definition, greatness is what you do for others, wouldn't you think it would just be as simple as, uh, as me saying like, okay, now go and do for others. 
In fact, you shouldn't even need me here tonight. Like last week when Riley finished this, the message, he should have said, okay, just go and do for others. That's all you need to know. Go and figure that out and you'll be great. Right? But, but we know, and you know, that, that no matter, it is so difficult to often do for others, right? Even on our best days, even on our best days when we wake up and we've had enough sleep and we get our coffee early in the morning and we think to ourselves, right, today is going to be a day where I am more others focused than I am myself. You know how quickly life can get in the way. You know how quickly, as soon as that person cuts you off in traffic when you're on the way to the train station and now you miss your train for uni, all of a sudden, you're not thinking about others, you're thinking about yourself. And you get that text message from that boyfriend, that girlfriend, they say those dreaded lines like, we need to talk, and you're like, oh my goodness. And all of a sudden, this day that was gonna be so others focused, all of a sudden gets derailed. And so the question that, that I want to look at tonight is, you know, what holds us back from doing for others? What are the things within our lives that, that hold us back and prevent us from doing for others and being others focused? And as, as I was thinking about this during the week, um, I came up with a, a couple of um, possible answers to this question. Now, th this is not exhaustive, what I'm about to share with you. But, but I think that at one time or another, the vast majority of us in this room or those listening online, maybe you can identify with what I'm about to share, which are maybe one of the reasons that have held you back from being or doing for others. The first one is this, that, that we think we don't have enough to offer. Maybe you've looked out at other people and you've compared yourself to others and you've thought, well, you know what? They have so much to offer. They have so much to give, but, but not me. I'm young, I don't have a lot of experience, I don't have a lot of time, I don't, I don't have anything to offer. Maybe another thing that's held you back is this, is, is you don't think, or we don't think we're needed. We look at this problem and we think, ah, someone else, surely, surely someone else will do something about this, right? Like surely someone else will fix it. Surely someone else with more time or more money or more energy than me will do something about it. Maybe, maybe you've thought this, that maybe you're waiting for the perfect conditions. You just thought to yourself, you know what, hey, I'll do for others, but I just got to get through this term of school. I just got to get through the exams at uni. I've just got to get a job. Like, I've just got to get married and get the house set up, right? I've just got to get through this really busy season at work. And, and you just wait for the perfect conditions and then, then you'll do for others. Maybe, maybe you've, you've thought about this. Maybe we think we can't make a difference. We look at the world and we think, you know what, this is such a big issue. What, what real difference can I make? What can one person do in, in comparison for others in, in light of this massive issue? What about this? Uh, we, maybe for some of you, you believe that your past disqualifies you. That because of a decision you made or because of a number of decisions that you made, you think to yourself, well, you know what? I can't possibly be for others because if they found out about what I've done, then they wouldn't want my advice now, I'm going to assume that you guys are all fantastic friends, right? Because I just know that about you, right? I, you all look like, from up here, you look like someone I would want to be friends with. Um, and so, I'm just going to trust that you're an incredible friend. And I just want you to imagine for a second that one of your friends comes to you. And, and they start to tell you, they say, hey, look, I've been looking out of the world. And I've been looking out of the world and, and I see this particular issue. Now, this issue could be like a, a, an issue on a global scale or it could be an issue on a local scale. It could be an issue as big as like poverty or world famine or getting sanitary needs to, to women in third world countries. Or it could just be something as simple as 
my friends don't have anyone to talk to when life at home uh, is, not a, is not a safe place for them. My friends don't have anyone to talk to or don't have access to, to, uh, to the ability to kind of have a safe space for a night when things at home aren't going well. And maybe, and so this friend comes to you and they start telling you and they say, hey, I see this need in the world. I see this need and either not enough is being done or else no one's doing anything about it and I can't figure out why. And then they go through and they, and then you, you ask them, you say, well, well, why don't you do something about it? It sounds like this is such a big deal for you. It sounds like this is something you can't get off your mind. Why don't you do something about it? And then they begin to, to tell you, well, I don't have enough to offer. I don't have enough time. I'm waiting for the perfect conditions. Oh, some decisions I made disqualify me. Now, I know you being the great friend that you are, you would probably go down these things and, and the first thing you would do is you would say to them, I think you've got more to offer than what you realise. And you would start to call out the greatness in them and you would actually begin to point out all the things they do offer, not the things they don't have to offer. Then you, what you would do is you would, look, you would tell them if they say, hey, I don't think I'm needed. And you would say, well, is this still an issue in the world? And they would say, well, yeah, that's why I came to you. And you'd say, well, if it's still an issue, of course you're needed. Because you're always going to be needed until whatever issue it is that breaks your heart or has got your attention is resolved. Maybe they say, oh, I'm just waiting for the perfect conditions. I know that you as a great friend, you would say, well, there is no such thing. There's never going to be enough time. You're never going to have the exact right amount of money. Life is never going to be perfect because life is not perfect. You, and you would say, hey, you, if this is a big deal for you, you need to go. You need to jump in. You would tell them when they tell you, hey, I don't think I can make a difference. You would say, everyone, everyone has the ability to impact one life. Everyone has the ability to make a difference in one person's life. And if that's all the difference you make, you don't know and you can never know the difference or the impact that you could make by reaching out and touching one life. And then, because I know how great of a friend you are, you would probably say something like this. That, that when they talk about how their past disqualifies them, you would probably flip it around. And you would actually say, actually, I think because of your past, that maybe your past qualifies you better than most people to be having this conversation. That if people dug below the surface and they found out about your past, it might actually give them more respect for you. It might actually uh, allow them to see you in a brand new light and help them on their journey, whatever that journey may be. And see, it's just natural for us to kind of say those sort of things to our friends, right? But it's not so natural to sort of say those things about ourselves. And so the question really is this is, why do we overvalue the talents other people have and undervalue our own? Why is that? Why is it that if our friend, or like we can call out the greatness in our friends, but we struggle so often to see it within ourselves? I think there's one little word there's one little emotion. Well, it's not so much a little emotion, it's a big emotion that doesn't allow us to value who God has created us to be. And I think it's this word, fear. Fear. Because fear is that voice that kind of whispers in the background. Fear is that voice that says, you'll never make a difference. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. You're not skilled enough. You don't have what it takes. The time that you have, that hour a week, that 45 minutes a week, you could never make a difference with that. And fear, this thing called fear, fear causes us to compare our behind the scenes to everyone else's highlight reel. 
You ever done that, right, when you're on Instagram? And you, here's the thing. You know, right, that Instagram and Instagram stories and Facebook and Snapchat, you know that that is literally a snapshot of everyone's life, right? Yet, yet I've got a whole lot of friends, for whatever reason, they're on holiday in Europe at the moment, and I look at their snapshots and I just see myself, like, sitting on the couch eating Sandboy barbecue chips with them, like, all spilled down my front, and I'm just comparing my behind-the-scenes to their snapshot that's going up on Instagram, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I could never do that. I could never be like that. And maybe you look at that when you look at other people who are making a difference in the world. And you know intellectually in your head, you know intellectually that, hey, Instagram and Facebook, that's just people's highlight reel. And you know it because you know it's your highlight reel. Yet we somehow find this need to compare our behind the scenes to this, this highlight reel and we get kind of trapped. And we get kind of locked in and we think, I could never do anything for others because of this comparison trap. And so what I want to do tonight is I actually want to take a, a, a uh, story out of the Old Testament part of the Bible. It's a very, very famous person. In fact, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if this is your first time in church, I guarantee you that you've either heard of this individual or you've uttered this individual's name off your lips in some kind of context. Um, but chances are what you know about this individual is their highlight reel. What you don't know about this individual, what you may not know about this individual is their behind-the-scenes story. And what I want to do tonight is I actually want to go behind the scenes of this individual story. Because it's in this individual story that we get a glimpse into what we can do in our daily lives. Such a simple thing that we can make our lives about others. And that we can actually make doing for others a part of our daily lives regardless of our circumstances. So the person I want to introduce you to is this guy David. Right, this is the David as in David and Goliath, as in like David, the little shepherd boy that, uh, that, uh, that walked out against the massive big uh, uh, giant named Goliath and the Goliath had like a big sphere and a big, uh, big shield and everything and Goliath walked out with a slingshot, threw the slingshot, hit him in the head, game over, Goliath, David, David's a champion. David is the OG, he's essentially the creator of the underdog story. Right Before David existed, there was no such thing as an underdog story. The underdog story was born out of this David guy. But what you, what you might not know is that David, uh, David was actually born into this nation that was called Israel. And up until just a little uh, period of time before uh, David was born, Israel uh, just used to, uh, didn't have a king, it didn't have a queen, it didn't have like a democracy or anything like that. It was very, very different from all the other nations around it at that period of time. In fact, there were often spiritual leaders or spiritual men or women that were kind of sent to, to lead the nation of Israel. And they would give wisdom and they would give guidance to the nation of Israel Primarily, it was like, hey, you guys have stopped following God. Now you should follow God again. You should stop following God. You should f follow God again. It was this really weird loop that Israel always got themselves into. And it was kind of like, when are you guys going to get the hint? Like, you start following God and then you stop and then we have to send someone to get you back on track. But what happened at, at this particular point in history is that Samuel, Samuel was kind of the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel at that time. And, uh, and the nation of Israel... To call it a nation is probably a little bit nice. It's like 12 disorganized tribes like coming together and all bickering um, against each other. But they kind of look out, these 12 disorganized tribes, and they look out at the rest of the world, and they say, hey, over there they've got a king. Over there they've got a queen. Why, why can't we have that? And so Samuel kind of goes to God, and he's like, hey, God, Israel wants a king or a queen. And God's like, well, that's not a great idea, right? It's not working out great for them so far. And he's like, I know, but like, they really want it. 
And, uh, and God's like, well, if they really want it, um, I'll give them one. And so God gives the, uh, the nation of Israel this king. And his name is King Saul. And Saul starts off his, uh, his reign as king really, really well. But he's got some serious character flaws. And those start to become really evident really, really quickly. And David kind of comes into the story. Because Samuel, this uh, spiritual leader of the nation of Israel, one day on a small farm in the back of a small town in the nation, walks onto the scene. And he actually walks onto David's father's farm. And David's father's name was Jesse. And so Samuel walks onto the property in the gravel. He's crunching under his feet as he walks down the path up to the door. And he knocks on the door and Jesse answers it and he says, Jesse, I, I know this is going to be a lot to take in. I know this is going to be maybe too much to take in, but, but God sent me here because one of your sons is going to be the future king of Israel. And, and if it's all right with you, I'd like to bring them out and I'd like to line them up so we can figure out which son it is. And so Jesse goes, okay. So, so Jesse brings all the boys out uh, and lines them up. And Samuel goes down the list of boys one by one by one by one. He kind of stands in front of him. He's like, is it this one, God? Okay, no. All right, on to the next one. This, no. Okay, it, no. Okay. And he gets all the way to the end. And then Samuel kind of like turns to Jesse and he's like, <clears throat> I don't want to be rude. I don't want to assume you're a bad dad or anything, but like, is it possible you've forgotten one? Like, is it possible that there's someone who's not here? And Jesse goes, well, well yeah, but but he's my youngest son. And in that culture, in that day and age, you did not want to be the youngest son. Right? The youngest son didn't get any uh, share in the estate. The youngest son didn't get any of the benefits of, uh, of the farm that they would have been on. The youngest son was kind of like the runt of the litter, really. You wanted to be the firstborn because the firstborn got all the privileges, got all the rights. And Samuel kind of finds this out and he kind of goes to God. He's like, God, I don't know if you heard that. Like, I'm assuming you did, but like... If you didn't, like, it's, it's only the youngest son. It's the youngest, like, what are we going to do? Like, this is, this is not how the story's played out. And this is what God says to Samuel. He says, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he's saying, and God, what God's saying to Samuel is there, he says, hey, I'm choosing someone to lead this nation. It's going to be a little different than before. It's going to be a little different than, than what you think. And, and the interesting thing, particularly if you're not really um, a church person, this whole Jesus thing is new to you, is this is not uncharacteristic of God. In fact, if you look at all the ancient documents that have been compiled together into the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you open them and you begin to read their pages, if you begin to look at the people, the men and the women that God used, what you tend to discover is that God tends to recruit from the pit, not the pedestal. God often goes to obscure, out-of-the-way places to have conversations with men and women who had written themselves off, with men and women who didn't believe they were good enough and thought their past disqualified them and didn't feel equipped. And God says, you're the person I want to use. And so, eventually what Samuel, uh, Jesse goes out and gets David, brings him back, and God says, yep, this is the future king of Israel. And so Samuel prays for him, and he tells him, David, one day you're going to be the king of Israel. And David says, cool, and goes back to being a shepherd. And then we fast forward a little period of time. We're not sure whether it's two months or two years, but there's some period of time that goes forward. And King Saul, still the king of the nation of Israel, and he is in need of a harp or a lyre player, because I guess that's what kings need. 
And so he kind of puts the word out to his servants. He goes, hey, does anyone know someone who can play the lyre really, really, really well? I need someone with that skill. And one of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse, Jesse who we met just before, of Bethlehem. If you're thinking to myself, like, I know that town from somewhere. That's where Jesus was born. Who knows how to play the lyre or the harp is another way. Now listen, listen to the way in which the servant describes the shepherd, David. This is what he says. I know one, he is a brave man and a warrior. He is a brave man and a warrior. David hasn't even killed Goliath at this point. David hasn't even stepped onto the battlefield. And so many of us, I I think maybe if you grew up in church like me, maybe you grew up to believe that David was this little tiny shepherd boy that had no experience walking out onto the battlefield and just kind of got lucky. But we hear that word had spread. David might have been a shepherd, but he wasn't a shepherd like other shepherds. Because the servants of the king looked at him and said, he is a warrior. There's something different about the way this guy handles his business out in the fields. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Now, I want to fast forward to the point that you all know so well. The point in the story where David goes toe-to-toe with Goliath. Now, we're not, we're not going to actually look at that, because you know what happens when David goes up against Goliath. But I want to look at the part right before it happens. The part right before it happens, because David finds his way onto the battlefield. David finds his way onto the battlefield where these two nations, Israel and the Philistines, are warring against each other. And, and it was kind of, I guess, a cost-effective way to do war at that point in history. But really what would happen, um, when these, when, uh, oftentimes when two nations would go toe-to-toe, their, their entire armies wouldn't fight. What they would do is they would nominate a champion. They're like, who's your best fighter? Okay, you. And who's your best fighter? Okay, blue corner, red corner, go. And the winner of that of that fight between the two champions won the war. And if you lost, then you became the other person's slaves and, and vice versa. And so Goliath was the champion of the Philistine army. Goliath was the, the hero that everyone was looking up to. And Israel, Israel was yet to nominate a champion. And so Goliath was walking up and back in front of the nation of Israel saying, who's going to fight me? And David was home, because remember he worked for King Saul, he was home visiting his dad, And then he decided to go and check in with his boss, King Saul, on the battlefield. And this is what David says when he hears about Goliath. He said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Isn't that interesting? This is the future king of Israel. He already knows he's going to be the king of Israel. And he walks up to Saul when no one else is ready to go. And he goes, "I'll, I'll do it. Is, this, is, what, is what you need someone to go and fight Goliath? I, I'll do it. I'm a servant. I'll, I'm here for you. I'll go about that. And what David is demonstrating in this moment is a word that we don't really use much in our culture, right? And it's this word, posture. Posture is simply this. It's your approach or attitude towards people, circumstances, and events. Like, you know someone who's really, really generous? That person has a posture of generosity. You know someone uh, who's a really great friend? That person has a posture of being a great friend. If you know someone who just seems to be able to trust God all the time, that person or that individual has a posture of faith because it's their approach, their attitude towards people, circumstances, and events. And David had this posture that said, I'm going to do for others. Others will be first. 
And this was Saul's response to David when he said that. He said, uh, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight uh, him. You are only a young man, someone under 20 would have been considered a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Okay, he's like you, right? He's a warrior, but he's been doing it as long as you've been around. And then David responds. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. That's not a great way to like try and convince your way to get onto the battlefield to fight a Philistine, right? Well, I've been keeping dad's sheep. Like that's the way forward. But what's so interesting is the fact that he actually says, okay, I need you to know, Saul, that, that I'm not doing this to brag. I'm actually here for you but I need you to know really what's been going on when I've been keeping my father's sheep. I need you to know why the men who recommended me to be your harpist knew that I was brave and knew that I was a warrior. Here's why. Because when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and I struck it and I killed it. David was saying to Saul, I'm not, I'm not being overwhelmed. I'm not being overwrought. I'm not just hyped up. I'm not just thinking about how awesome this would be if I beat Goliath for my Instagram bio and how many followers I could get. Like, I'm not thinking about all the, all the classes and all the YouTube success I could have. David's saying, hey, I need you to know that I'm here for you. And up, all the way up until this moment, I've been for my dad when I was a servant, uh, when I was a, a shepherd. And I've been doing all these things to serve other people. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And this is how David finishes it. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Even after David's kind of had his flex moment, he says, this isn't even about me. This, this, what, what I'm trying to do to convince you, I'm, I'm just saying this and I'm just letting you know that, that it wasn't me doing this, it was God protecting me. It was God allowing me to do these things and I want to let you know that the same person who did that, the same person who followed God to battle these apex predators is the same person who's standing in front of you and, and I'm not saying I know the outcome but all I'm saying is that I'm here willing to step out in faith to what God has called me to do which is serve others. See, really what David is, is trying to get at is this, is that greatness begins with posture, not position. Before David ever stepped out onto the battlefield against Goliath, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, he didn't know the outcome. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know the way the story would turn out. And what got him to step out onto the battlefield was certainly not a position. He was the harpist for the king. It was a posture that he had. A posture that he said, regardless of... Because really, if you look at David, he wasn't good enough. He didn't have the qualifications. The conditions were certainly not perfect. He should have been disqualified, really, from all of it. But David goes, I've got a posture of being for other people. And God used that when he stepped out. And so I want to give us something super practical, because you know that we love to like, make it practical here at Beyond. I want to give us something all this week to help us develop this this posture of being for others. And it's a question. And it's a question that's so simple that when you hear it, you're probably going to think it's beneath you. You're probably going to think, like, that's too simple, Chris. Like, I'm ready for the next stage. Like, give me the next level of questions. 
But I want you to know and I want you to understand that this question is so powerful because it's the exact same question that David would have asked himself before he went out to face Saul. So when you see it, don't underestimate this question. And the question is simply this. I want you to ask seven people, one person every single day, I want you to ask this question. What can I do to help you? What, what can I do to make your life easier? What, what do you need from me this week? And, and I don't care who you ask, right? You can ask anyone, right? You can ask your husband, you can ask your wife, you can ask your brother, you can ask your sister, you can ask your mom, you can ask your dad. You can get some brownie points with your parents for doing this. You can get some brownie points with your grandparents for doing this. Um, get brownie points with your boss or your co-workers or whoever it is. But I just want you to pick seven people this week, one person a day for seven days. And I, wanna, I want you to ask this question, what can I do to help you? And begin to develop that posture of putting others first. And I guarantee you that when you do it, two things will happen. The first is this, that you begin to see more ways that you can be for others. I guarantee you that if you ask this every day, by about the time you get to day five, what will begin to happen is you'll actually begin to see ways that you can help others. You can actually begin to see ways that you can take on this posture of being for others without even having to ask them because you'll be looking for it already. And then the second thing that will happen when you begin to um, ask this question is your focus shifts from your comfort to the needs of others. When you start to ask this all the time, you're focused, your focus shifts. right? Because fear is that thing within inside us that wants us to focus on ourselves. right? Fear is that thing that I'm sure told the Wright brothers, no one wants to fly, no one cares, you're not good enough. You don't have the skills. You don't have the money. Fear is that thing that I'm sure whispered in Steve Jobs' ear, no one wants a touchscreen phone. Right? Fear is that thing that I'm sure was going through Rosa Parks' mind when she was on the back of that bus and someone said move. And she, that fear was that thing that said, just do it. It'll be easier. You don't have what it takes to stand up and start a movement. But the thing is, is that when you start to focus on others, it's not that the fear goes away. It's that you make another voice louder. And what you make louder is the needs of others. And just in case, there are some of you who are kind of thinking like, yeah, but, but what, if, what if fear gets the best of me? What if, I, what if I start to do for others and then something happens and then fear happens and then I kind of fail and it doesn't turn out the way that I want? Well, if that happens, I, I want to share with you is the last thing and then I'm done. One of my, um, a quote from one of my favorite authors. Um, his name's John Acuff. And he says this. He says, if you're going to risk and maybe fail, fail at something that matters. Don't fail at being worried about the fact that you don't measure up. Don't fail being worried about your past. Don't fail being worried about yourself. Fail at something that matters. Fail gloriously so that even in failure, lives change. That even if you don't reach the heights that you want, that God would use you and God would use the fact that you wanted to step out and do for others, God would use that to change lives. And that power to change lives is in your hands. And it's in my hands. It's in all of our hands. But it begins when we start to ask the question, how can I help
So ask that question this week and come back next week for, as Riley wraps up part three of How to Be Great. I'd love to pray. Jesus, it can be really easy to kind of get just caught in a cycle where we just focus on our own needs, where we listen to that voice of fear. But Jesus, I pray that this week you would help us to be bold. You would help us to be courageous. You would help us not to drown out that voice of fear, but just simply make another voice louder. And that that voice would be the needs of others. That we would ask that question, what can I do or how can I help you? And that lives would change as a result. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.